says, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and he had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. And Father... We humbly ask now that as we open the word of God, you'd help us to continue in our worship as we submit our hearts to the truth of your word. We ask that your spirit would speak to us and that our hearts would be receptive and that we would, Lord, desire to hear what you would say to us now through your word and by your spirit. Bless your word in this time, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever wondered why perhaps as Christians we seem to maintain this habit or discipline of what we may call attending church? Doing this thing that you're doing this morning, assembling together on a Sunday morning with other followers of Christ, certainly the Bible instructs that it is important. God commands us that we are to assemble together. It is something we are supposed to do to gather with others who are connected to Jesus. But what then really matters most during these times when we do this very thing of meeting with Jesus and meeting for Jesus? Is it, for example, that we experience, let's say, really quality and enjoyable social interactions with other spiritual people? I mean, that we find that we make good connections with other people and we build some good relationships and maybe we get encouraged by those who are there that day and we have some really good bonds and friendships and that's what quantifies, hey, that, that's what's important. You need to really have good social connection and build some friendships and have great conversations. Is that what's most important? Or... Is it so that we can have a platform as we do have available to us when we assemble for church meetings to have an outlet to be able to perform some helpful service so that we can then kind of feel good that we, we did something, we volunteered, we helped out in some way and it makes us feel good in our conscience that we contributed in some way or is it maybe so that perhaps we could get something? Uh, out of the meeting for ourselves because we have a need. We want to make sure we get what we need out of that meeting and that we were, in a sense, well taken care of or served well. And maybe then if we don't experience what we wanted or get what we wanted, then we quickly become critical, poor customer service 
at that church meeting uh, and we don't like it because we didn't get maybe what we were after. Or possibly, and this is what I would recommend, is this primarily intended to be a time when we express our love for Jesus, our devotion toward Jesus, and that we assemble foremost because we want to honor Jesus because Jesus is among us. I would suggest that that latter thing should be what matters most, and it is what matters most, and Mary, in our passage this morning, demonstrates that to us as we see her doing what she does there in verse 3. And then Jesus' commendation of her action, I think, reveals that it matters to him and that it ministers to his heart when we publicly assemble and express our love for Jesus in worship. I want to point out to you this morning that this section in John chapter 12, it's almost, when you look at it, this scene, sort of a sketch or a picture of the assembly of the local church. It's a time where people have assembled because of Jesus. He's present among them. Jesus said, whenever two or three gather in my name, I would be there in the midst. You notice in this passage, you have people whose lives have been radically changed by the Lord. People who've had an encounter with Jesus, they know him and love him. You have people fellowshipping and talking and sharing what's going on in their lives. You have Martha here in this scene and she's busily serving. She's doing ministry so that the meeting and the gathering can go as planned and people can be benefited. You find the activity, as I said, of worship taking place as Mary gives this extravagant expression of worship seeking to honor the Lord in this passage. And then you also have, in this somewhat scene of a church gathering, you also have even those there like, like uh, Judas and the religious leaders who are there assembling with the disciples of the Lord, but yet they have an unhealthy agenda. Their heart is in the wrong place. They're somewhat there selfishly for themselves, and they're even somewhat critical about what's taking place and those who are involved in the process. So uh, let's look at this together and see what the Lord might speak to us. If you look back in verse 1 with me, let's work our way through it. It says, then it was six days before the Passover, that's important, and Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. So John sets the stage for us here regarding the time frame of Jesus's life as well as where Jesus was geographically at the time when these things happened. Look with me in verse one. It says this was six days or about a week, you could say, before the Passover. Now remember, Passover, as we said before, was one of the three major feasts among the Jews. Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. These were the three major or mandatory feasts, at least all Jewish males, if not their families as well, were required to be in Jerusalem at the temple area. So when Passover took place, basically large crowds of pilgrim feasts would all descend upon the city of Jerusalem and the temple area. And remember, Passover celebrated God's powerful deliverance out of slavery for his people. It was when they celebrated how God had seen them in their bondage under the tyranny and the taskmasters there in Egypt and he had heard their cry and he sent a deliverer to them to release them from their slavery and their bondage and to bring them into the new and better life that God intended for them instead. 
And as a part of the Passover experience, remember, they had to trust in the blood of a sacrificial lamb. That was the very thing as they trusted in that blood of a sacrificed lamb that allowed the wrath and judgment of God to pass over them personally as a part of their deliverance and being brought out. And during that time of worship and reflection when they celebrated the Passover, as we see here, it involved lambs being sacrificed. Now, to connect the dots, remember, right at the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, John the Baptist started preaching, pointing people to Jesus and saying, remember, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of of the world. So John was prophetically indicating as he pointed to Jesus that Jesus was going to be the fulfillment, the final ultimate lamb of God who would be slain for the sins of the world so that people could be delivered from spiritual slavery, so they could be forgiven of their sins and they could be brought into the life that God intended for them instead and Jesus would do that as he would ultimately now fulfill the Passover now it tells us here in verse 1 this was six days before the Passover what this is telling us is we are now one week before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ we are now six days away from the death of Christ which is an important thing to note in John's gospel that means everything that is recorded from chapter 12 verse 1 until the end of of John chapter 21 all deals with the last week of our Savior's life. John spends 11 chapters writing about the first, if you would, 33 or so years of Jesus' life and he spends then the last 10 chapters, basically the last half of his gospel, focused on the last week of the life of Jesus and its importance so remember that as you're studying these remaining chapters, all happening within the last week of Jesus' life. Now at this point, Jesus, we're told in the prior chapter, had retreated to the area of Ephraim in the wilderness because tension was so strong from the opposition of the religious leaders. And he's spending time alone, quietly investing in his disciples. But now the Passover feast is coming of which Jesus knows it's his appointed hour to go and die as the Passover lamb to sacrifice his life for the sins of the world. He now heads back towards Jerusalem and verse 1 says he came to Bethany, which was a town about two miles outside of Jerusalem, very close. And it was a place where Jesus had stood before. He had friends and connections in that area. It would be less crowded than the Jerusalem uh, sort of pilgrim feast that was assembled there. There was less hatred and tension to be dealt with because of the religious leaders. And verse 2 then goes on to tell us that there in Bethany, at this area, remember, it says the same area where Lazarus had just been raised from the dead. That was certainly the talk of the town there in Bethany. We saw that in chapter 11. That It says the people of that town made Jesus, verse 2, look at it, a supper or a dinner. So at this point, we see a dinner now hosted, and Jesus is the guest of honor. The other gospel accounts tell us that it was a man named Simon who used to be a leper. So you have a man who had been healed of leprosy, probably radically transformed by the touch of Jesus, who had a gratitude for the Lord, much like many others, decides now to have a time of, of a meal for Jesus. He invites over different guests to want to honor the Lord with this meal. And you have a number of people now who know Jesus, who love Jesus, 
whose lives have been impacted by Jesus and they all assembled together for a time with Jesus and with one another. Sounds kind of like a church assembly, doesn't it? So they now assembled together to honor the Lord and verse 2 goes on to tell us that Martha served but Lazarus, who had come back from the dead, was one of those who sat at the table with him or with Jesus. So this sort of brings us into the living room scene now, or the, I guess I should say the dining room area where everyone is sharing this meal. And we start to take note of what different people are doing. Verse 2 tells us first that Martha served. That was Martha's temperament. We see it in the Gospels. She, by nature, this was her gifting. She was just a worker bee. That's what Martha was. She enjoyed serving, being busy. She found fulfillment expressing, I almost want to say, this was sort of her love language for Jesus. This was her, she just loved to serve in helpful ways, to bless the Lord, to help others. And she's definitely, let's be honest, she's definitely grown at this point in her life and her Christian walk. Because the last time you see Martha in Luke chapter 10, she's also serving, but there she's complaining while she's serving. And she's serving and she's grumbling in the midst of it. She's angry. Other people aren't helping and serving. Now here she is in this scene. She's serving once again. And there's at least, if you count them up, at least 17 people present at this gathering here. Jesus you have his 12 disciples, you have Martha and Mary themselves, you have Lazarus, you have Simon, and yet now Martha's serving and she seems very content in her labor. She seems very content in her work, just quietly, faithfully serving, discharging her ministry. She just wants to bless Jesus. She just wants to help other people and be a blessing and do what she can. And she's doing her ministry and love for the Lord and love for others and quiet fulfillment. And can I just say, if we're going to serve the Lord, that's how we should be serving. We should be serving the Lord in that way. Number one, not needing to draw attention to ourselves, just quietly, faithfully serving the Lord, whatever our service may be. And as well, if we're going to serve the Lord, we shouldn't have a bad attitude about it. Where we're grumbling and complaining. How come nobody else dumps the trash cans? How come nobody else takes care of the bathrooms? How come nobody else ministers to the kids? Why do I always got to minister to the kids? This should never be our attitude. We should serve faithfully, quietly, doing it out of fulfillment that it's for the Lord and to bless his people. We do it out of love for the Lord and we just fulfill our duty with that kind of an attitude. Psalm 100 says this. It says, serve the Lord with gladness. That's how we should serve the Lord. It should be a pleasure to serve the Lord. We do it for him and for his people. And here Martha is showing a great demonstration of one of the things we should do when we assemble. Also reads here in verse 2 that you had Lazarus who was one of those, the idea is many, who are sitting around the table with Jesus, likely also with the disciples and Simon who used to be a leper and maybe even others as well. Now, when it says here in the Bible, sitting at a table for a meal, again, don't get the image in your mind like a modern meal today in our dining room or kitchen where we have straight back tall chairs and you use knives and forks and plates and we're very refined with our silverware and so forth. Culturally in that day, that's not how they ate meals. What they typically did in that day was they would recline on their side, on their elbow, 
on a very low table, a U-shaped table typically, they would lay on pillows and they would recline. Basically, you laid down to eat instead of laying down after you ate because you were so full and you couldn't buckle your pants. They laid down why they ate, probably so you could get more in there. It was, we might as well lay down ahead of time. We're going to fall asleep afterwards. So they laid on their side. Their feet would be projected away from the table. And that was important because in that day, people's feet were usually filthy because they wore sandals. They walked on dirty, dusty roads. There wasn't the greatest plumbing. So you'd put your feet away from the table. You lay to the side and you ate with your hands. You didn't use silverware. You would reach in and pull off a piece of bread or pita or whatever the meat was. You would just take a chunk out and there were sauces you would dip in. And this was the way culturally they ate at that time. And it says Lazarus was one of those who sat there with Jesus at the table. Imagine you have him who's been raised from the dead. You have Simon who used to be a leper and now has been cured. I imagine there was great conversation and some pretty incredible stories and testimony going around that table there as they're talking about the love of the Lord and the powerful works he's done in different people's lives. There was probably a lot of spiritual encouragement that came from those social interactions among those who were there who knew and loved Jesus. Uh, their conversations probably were talking a great bit in a way that honored the Lord. I bet Jesus was being uplifted in the conversations among them. The focus was on what he did. And probably a whole lot of faith and love was being stirred up in the hearts of the people present as they were talking about the Lord. And let me just say, that is the type of social activity that is the most fruitful social activity among Jesus and his followers when they get together. When there is conversation and communication that centers upon the Lord. What's the Lord done in your life? What did he do in your life this last week? And how are you doing with the Lord? And when the focus of discussion is about Jesus, that's the most fruitful social interaction that really can go on. And as we look at this scene here, I want to say in the church, when we assemble together, we need both of these same kind of things going on. We need, like Martha, people to serve. Because truth be told, there are things that need to be done. There are things that need to be attended to. If you're going to host a meeting, if ministry is to happen, people have to serve. That's a part of the process. It tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, each one, interesting, not just a few, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. The Bible says we all have a gift or gifts that we should exercise spiritually and we should use those gifts faithfully to serve in some capacity being connected plugged in not just receiving but finding an outlet to give when we assemble together Ephesians 4 says it this way Ephesians 4:16 says that the church listen grows and builds itself up as each part does its share listen to that the church grows and the church builds itself up in love when each part does its own share, indicating that when a Christian chooses to just perhaps sit and take in church, basically as, in a sense, a, a, you know, a, spe a spectator, 
And we come and we, we worship, but we basically are a spectator sport type Christian. And we don't serve in some capacity, finding a way to plug in, use our gift, do something as an outlet of our Christianity as well. The Bible says that when a person refrains from serving, basically growth is hindered. The, the, the body life is hindered because that person is not contributing what God wants them to contribute to help the body be built up and grow and love. So if you choose not to serve, you choose, in a sense, to stunt the growth of the church because there's something you have that you should be helping to offer, to bless others. You're necessary to help the church grow and be strengthened and be built up. And you're missing an opportunity in your Christian life to experience the healthy dynamic of both receiving and giving and receiving and giving, which helps us to be healthy Christians. And just like Lazarus and those around the table, not only should people be serving, but we need as well what was seen there. That fellowship, people interacting, communicating with one another, spending time in spiritual fellowship to build each other up through talking about the Lord and so forth. Hebrews 10 says this, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. Again, the Bible is very clear. We are not as Christians ever to cease from meeting with other Christians collectively. That is not part of God's plan. Do I have an individual walk with Jesus Christ? Yes. But the Bible says we are a part of the body of Christ. You disconnect any part of your body from the rest of the body, it's not going to make it. It's not going to make it. We're intended to live in community, to draw from one another and to encourage, to contribute what our part of the body contributes to the whole body, but also to receive from the body. So the Bible says here that we should never, it says, give up from meeting together. It says, as some are in the habit of doing. Even in that day, there were those who were beginning to say, I don't need church. I'm a Christian, but I don't need church. I don't need God's people. I, that's an unhealthy thing, and it is contradictory to Scripture. It violates the Word of God, and it is not the will of God for a Christian. We're to be stirring one another up, building each other up, encouraging each other. That happens as we assemble collectively together as we can. Verse 3 then goes on to say, And then Mary also took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, and she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. So look at this. As everybody else is kind of preoccupied, they're serving, they're eating, they're doing different things. It seems Mary, who was very sensitive spiritually, she now at this moment is moved within to want to honor Jesus in this special way. Now, let me remind you. Up to this point, Jesus has been saying to his disciples and his followers that he was going to be arrested, to suffer, and ultimately to be crucified and to die. And it seems that nobody was really paying attention whenever Jesus was saying that. Or they just they never wanted to hear when Jesus would say that. But it seems Mary, who was spiritually sensitive to the heart of the Lord, had been thinking about this and, and, and think about it. This was a very heavy thing. Yes, was Jesus God? Absolutely, he was God. But he was also a man. And he was about with the very nerve endings and pain sensations and this all the same human makeup as you and I. He was about to face bitter betrayal, brutality physically upon his body as a man. 
He was going to suffer tremendously torture and pain. He was going to face as an innocent individual the judgment of God against the filth and the sin of the entire world for all of human history. There was a heavy weight upon the Lord. This was very heavy. And I wonder if perhaps Mary sensed these coming realities and maybe even that Jesus was a little heavy hearted as this is just six days out now. And the weight of this upon his heart and mind and maybe Mary in her sensitivity to the things of God, sensing this and her love for the Lord, she's prompted within now to want to do something to just bless Jesus. To, to just do something to minister to his heart, to, to strengthen him, to encourage him, to express her love and devotion for him, why she still has the opportunity to do it. And to take advantage of this opportunity to show her love to him directly, to let others see her love for him. And that's why here in verse 3, Mary, it says, takes this pound of very costly oil of spikenard and anoints the feet of Jesus and starts to wipe his feet, it says, with her hair. Now, this reference here to costly oil of spikenard is a reference to a very rare and a very expensive strong, fragrant oil that came from the root of a plant in the area of India. And it was usually kept in a flask or a box that could then be broken. And it was typically broken and then used all at one time. Now, it was a strong aromatic oil that usually was used, as you can see here, for perfuming the body on a very special occasion or maybe the most important day of one's life. So a lot of times a gal would use it, she would save it and use it on her wedding day to make herself smell wonderful on that very special day, the most important day maybe of her life, or other times spikenard was used, it was broken and used to embalm the body of your dead loved one, to honor them in a special way because they were the most important person in your life. Because it's rare, it was extremely expensive. In fact, verse 5 tells us that the value of this oil of spikenard that was used was worth 300 denarii. Now, a denarii in that culture was the amount of money you would receive from a day's wages as of common labor, which tells us the value of this that she just used is about a year's salary. So imagine, you want to talk about costly perfume. A year's salary for one bottle of perfume that's used one time. This was extremely, extremely, not only important, but became the most valuable possession that a person had if they did possess it. And that's why it was reserved. It was never used lightly. This was something that was incredibly expensive. It had tremendous value, not only financially, but personally. And it was kept for an important day. And here we find Mary doing what? She comes into this scene where everyone's assembled around. She quietly, it seems, walks over to Jesus and she takes out her spikenard and she breaks it. And it says she begins to pour it out on Jesus. Some accounts say on his head, others say his feet. It seems she probably did both. And then it says as she pours it out, anoints Jesus' feet, she then lets down her hair, which was something that a Jewish woman typically did not do publicly. She lets down her hair and she begins to then use her hair to wipe the feet of Jesus to spread this aromatic oil all around the Lord's feet in front of everyone present. She was endeavoring to honor the Lord. She wanted to bless the Lord. Mary senses his death is at hand and she wants to show her love for him before the funeral. See, this is like sending the beautiful, you know, the, the, all those nice flowers we get when somebody passes away and they can't even see the flowers. 
She wants to give it in advance. She's trying to do this for the day of his burial because she says, I want to do it before he dies. I want him to see my love for him and, and my honor towards him as, as the worth that he has in my life as my Lord. And so she makes this extravagant expression of her devotion towards the Lord and her love for Jesus to honor him publicly, giving him the very best she had. And it is a beautiful, beautiful image in the Bible of personal worship toward Jesus of one who knows and loves him. And can I just say, please hear me, I think the spirit of Mary that's portrayed right here, I think that is the most important thing and what matters most to our Lord when we assemble together as the people of God. That our greatest desire, our chief ambition would be to render worship to Jesus. To show our love for the Lord, to express honor towards Him and how much He means to us and our worth, to express our devotion, to want to bless the Lord's heart. That we'd show up and say, I don't care how bad the preaching is, and it's been bad. I don't care how flat the music may go, but I want to go there and I want to honor Jesus. And, and I know that He assembles with His people, and so I want to show up and I want to honor the Lord. I want to show my love towards him. And I want to sing, and I don't care how I sing. I just want to sing because I know Jesus is listening. And I want to express my love for him and demonstrate that he means so much to me. Consider Mary's expression of worship here to honor Jesus. It involved a few things. First of all, it involved a measure of personal cost and sacrifice. Would you agree? Here's worship pictured for us, and it measured out a, 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 an amount, certainly, of personal cost to her as an individual. I think it's a good reminder. Sometimes in order for us to worship and honor the Lord as we should, sometimes it involves a measure of cost, a measure of personal sacrifice. I think we have to ask ourselves, what are we willing to give up to render worship to the Lord? Are we willing to make some personal sacrifices in our lives to worship Jesus, to make sure that we worship Jesus, to show our love for him, to express our honor to him publicly? Are you willing to offer the best of your life over to the Lord and give him the very best that you have, like the oil of spikenard, rather than just whatever leftovers when you can periodically throw a little attention to the Lord? Are you willing to give him your best and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness rather than just, well, whatever we have left on hand here, I'll just throw Jesus a, a little bone once in a while when I can fit him in my very big and important life. Or instead, does Jesus come first and the rest of the world revolves around Jesus and everything else fits in? But first and foremost, I want to honor Jesus and I'm willing to make sacrifices to do that in any way. It also required a measure of faith to worship like this, that she was trusting that it was okay to give all that up because Jesus was worth that. As well as the fact, I think it required faith because think about it, what would others think? Here's everybody else, and Mary comes in and does this extravagant thing. She's a human being. You have to imagine that it took a measure of faith that she had to work through. I want to do this, but what's everybody else going to think? Will they think I'm weird? Will they laugh at me? Will they mock me? Or, and it took faith to believe this is what's right, and it doesn't matter what others think of me. It also included, thirdly, personal humility. And I think humility is an essential virtue if we're going to worship the Lord. What does she do? She anoints his feet and she starts wiping his feet with her hair. As I said, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, 
Everybody's feet were filthy. That's why you washed feet in that culture, because you walked in open sandals. The plumbing wasn't the greatest. It was hot, dusty roads, dirt and mud and things would cake to your feet. So she's wiping the most filthy part of his body with her hair in front of everyone in that room doing this. This took personal humility. And let me just say, it is true, oftentimes pride and it's a lack of humility will be the very thing that hold many people back from expressions of worship toward the Lord. I don't have to tell you the reason why, despite what they say, some people won't sing out loud, pride. Oh, I'm not a good singer. Who cares? This is an American Idol. We'd all be kicked off. Oh, my voice is not, I'm just not a singer. Okay, but Jesus didn't save you to keep you how you are. He saved you to change you. You are a Christian. Now you're a singer. Because the Bible says, sing to the Lord. Oh, and, and the Bible tells us to lift our hands, Lord. Ah, sometimes I want to lift my hands. I feel that I feel, oh, you know, and then we str- Oh, I feel that I, oh, I want to do it, but what, oh, that's weird. People think I'm weird. Oh. What is all that? It's a lack of humility. Did Mary care what people thought? Yeah, she cared what Jesus thought. Don't let a lack of humility or pride in your heart keep you from worshiping and honoring your Lord. By golly, he died naked on the cross. He was disgraced for you and I. Certainly, I can humble myself in the sight of the Lord and worship him in the way that he's worthy of. And finally, in Mary, we see as well here that what she did or worship had an impact and an influence that affected everybody assembled in the room. Do you see the end of verse 3? It says the house was filled with the fragrance of that perfume when she did that that day. That shows you the strength of that aromatic oil and it also, again, is a beautiful picture of the powerful influence when a person engages in worship passionately like Mary does. It fills the fragrance of the entire room and everyone else is assembled and it has an influence on others. And can I just say, I think this is a very beautiful portrayal because... When someone chooses, like a Mary with that heart, to just sincerely begin to pour out their heart to the Lord and worship, and they are just passionately worshiping Jesus and loving Jesus, the fragrance of that kind of love for the Lord, it fills a room. It's contagious, man. I love to be led in worship by people who are genuinely worshiping and not just playing good sound and music for me. I'd much rather be led in worship by somebody who doesn't seem as proficient in their singing or their playing, but I look at them and man, they're worshiping the Lord. I want to follow. I want to do what they're doing. And then I can listen to someone else who sounds incredible, and I go, I could hear this on the radio. I want to worship, man. Would you worship with me? There's something very beautiful. Listen, when we engage in worship, that fragrance fills the room. It has a beautiful impact of the, the beauty of worship and it just has an effect upon everyone. May God give us more a heart like Mary to be worshipers of Jesus who render to him with a spiritually sensitive heart our expressions of worship. Hebrews 13 says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise that is, here it is, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. It tells us in Colossians 3 that we should be speaking using psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Again, not singing 
because that's what the Lord's people do, but singing to the Lord with a gracious, generous heart wanting to honor him in the midst of it. Well, watch what happens now, verse 4 through 6 here with Judas. It says, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who would later betray him, he said, when he saw Mary do this, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And then John records for us, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. So as this beautiful expression happens of worship to honor Jesus, all of a sudden now the silence is broken by one of the disciples whose heart was in a wrong place in the midst of this assembly together. Judas, who obviously did not love the Lord, he did not want to worship the Lord. In fact, later it says here he was going to betray the Lord. He, in verse 5, breaks the silence by questioning what's happening, saying, wait a minute, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor to help out the needy? Now, Mark tells us in his account, Mark 14, that that initial criticism of Judas then spawned the rest of some of the disciples that were there to start to get indignant and they all started to criticize her sharply saying, why was this, they used the word, wasted. Talk about ouch. Here she's showing her love for the Lord and her sacrifice for the Lord and people look at her love for the Lord and her sacrifice for the Lord and they say, what a waste. What a waste. This person's wasting their love. What are they doing? What a waste. And this sharp criticism now comes right in the midst of those assembled. And can I just say this? Notice Judas's criticism of Mary's worship. Let's be honest. Doesn't he even sound somewhat spiritual in what he's saying? I mean, I mean, look at it. Think of what he's saying. Why was this oil not sold for cash? That's a year's worth of salary. Do you know how much work among the poor we could have done with that? Sounds like a pretty good steward, doesn't he? He should get stewardship of the year. Sounds like he has such a great burden for those who are needy and less fortunate. And he's basically saying, if she had just donated this to us, we could have sold it for a lot of cash and we could have done some really great things to help out all the poor people and Jesus likes to help out poor people. Boy, isn't it interesting and amazing how the most unhealthy and crooked people among a church can sound very spiritual? And like they have a great burden for ministry? Hmm. I think we have to pay attention once in a while. She's informed here uh, that what she's doing is basically a waste, but we're told in verse 6, particularly in this situation, John points out to us there in the sixth verse, that Judas was the one among the disciples who held the money box for Jesus' ministry. He was basically the treasurer. He was the finance guy. And typically, we entrust the finances to somebody who's pretty reliable, to somebody who's deemed trustworthy. Which means that Judas must have kept up a pretty good image outwardly that no one questioned Judas, or they certainly wouldn't be letting him have the Lord's ministry money as he was sort of the treasurer among the group there. No one starts to, to, to challenge Judas when he says this. In fact, as I said, when Judas starts to criticize Mary for her worship and complain, they jump on board and think, he's right. Yeah, this guy always does have good wisdom. He's such a good steward. And they start joining in in the criticism club instead. Most of the disciples probably thought Judas was a spiritually solid and stable and credible guy. Little did they know it was actually quite the opposite. 
Because it says in verse 6 there that he didn't say this because he cared about the poor. That's the, he didn't really have a burden for the poor. He was a thief, the Bible says. And he wanted the, the oil to be sold because he could then take the cash out of the money box. He was calculating his head. By golly, a year's wages. I could have stolen a month off the top. Nobody would have known. And he's basically calculating how he's not able to steal money. And let me just say... Jesus, whose foremost concern is not raising money, that's pretty clear, because why would we let Jesus be the treasurer? Jesus, whose foremost concern is not primarily raising money, he knew what Judas was like. He knew he was a fraud. He knew he was a thief and stealing money from the ministry, yet he allowed him the opportunity to have access to his life and to his ministry for a season of time. Why? Because Jesus is so stinking gracious. And he is so loving and kind, he was allowing grace and hope that Judas would repent. That he would get right before it was too late. So Judas represents a reality. There will be those among the gatherings of the Lord's people at times who have a wrong heart. That have an unhealthy or selfish agenda. They're only looking to get what they're after. They're only looking to get what they want. And often when they don't get what they want, like Judas... They have a critical spirit. And for all of us this morning, let's be careful that the attitude of Judas never creeps into our hearts. That it never creeps into our attitude where we only assemble at church, as I said, just to get something out of it for ourselves or to get something out of the people for ourselves. And we operate as nothing more, listen, than like a spiritual customer or a spiritual consumer. And we highly elevate the importance of being catered to personally. And then if somehow we don't get what we wanted or we weren't satisfied, or you don't get what you're after, you just then become critical and nasty. And that is not healthy. Not healthy. Be someone who's a worshiper of Jesus and not a consumer, but a contributor. A lover, a worshiper of Jesus that wants to contribute and bless others. And let's also take note, consider the character of the person who's doing the criticism. Mary's criticized for this beautiful worship shown towards Jesus. And now all of a sudden she's criticized for her love and service for the Lord. But consider by who it is. It's Judas Iscariot. That's not exactly, I wouldn't say, the type of individual whose opinion really should matter that much. It's Judas Iscariot. And I say that because sometimes, and perhaps you're here this morning, you are going to experience criticism for your love for the Lord. Or maybe you're going to be criticized for some thing you do for the Lord or some way you want to serve the Lord or a sacrifice you make for the Lord. Can I just remind you, always consider the character of the person who's doing the criticism. Listen, I've been a Christian, like I said, since 1992. I've been in you know, ministry for many, many years. And people are always going to criticize. People are going to make their critiques and offer their criticisms and so on and so forth. And I find sometimes people will be very critical and you realize, okay, this person who's making this criticism, why does the church do things this way? Or why? And you realize, you show up to church once a month. What the heck does... You can say that in the pulpit, right? Heck, okay, I did anyway. Father, forgive me. What does your opinion really matter? You show up once a month. You're not here pouring out your blood and guts with other people who are here regularly praying, laboring, serving. You come, you show up once in a while, and you have criticisms. 
And you have to step back and simply consider the character of the person who's making the criticism. You may be criticized at times for your spiritual life. Can I just encourage you? Always take into consideration the character of the person criticizing. Maybe somebody mocks you or makes fun of you for your Christianity and it's the person at your job or, and it's the person, their life is a mess. You're going to let them bum you out? Their life is a mess. Their marriage is falling apart and they're the one criticizing you for your Christianity? Don't let that phase you. Realize the character of that person and weigh that out as you experience criticisms. And on top of that, look as this goes on, verse 7, Jesus having heard this criticism now, says, let her alone. And I imagine there was a sternness when he said it. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. So Jesus comes to Mary's defense and he sharply rebukes kind of the critical spirit that's taking place in the room. He says, let her alone. He's sternly saying, basically, leave her alone. Get off of her back now. He doesn't take kindly to it. It's possible sometimes, maybe when we start to get a little critical or question someone else in their spiritual devotion, that the Lord has to say to us, why don't you leave them alone? I appreciate what they're doing for me. And he explains here in verse 7 and 8 what Mary had done. He says, she's anointing my body for burial. She's more spiritually sensitive than all of you in this room, he's saying. She realizes I'm about to die soon and she's trying to anoint my body with this perfume to minister to me and I deeply appreciate it, Jesus says. And he says in these verses here, listen, he says, the poor you're going to have with you always. In other words, he's saying, because of sin and this fallen world, there is always going to be a problem with poverty. There are always going to be poor people and he's saying, there will always be plenty of time and occasions when you can go out and you can help the poor. And we should do that. And he's saying there will be plenty of time to keep ministering to the poor. But he's saying, me, my presence here on this earth as God in the flesh, that's not going to be with you always. And she's done this because she's sensitive to the timing and the heart of the Lord. Why? Because Mary was foremost a worshiper. And because she was foremost a worshiper, she's very sensitive to the heart of the Lord. She's sensitive to the things of the Lord. She discerned what mattered to the heart of the Lord. And we should desire, like Mary, to be a spiritually sensitive person, to want to know what matters to the heart of the Lord. Even in spiritual things or ministry, what should happen first and what's more important than other things? And how does that happen? Maybe we say, I want to be a more spiritually sensitive person. It's not real complicated. Put a greater focus on worship. Mary was a worshiper of the Lord. That's what made her heart sensitive to the things that were spiritually uh, attentive to what mattered to the heart of the Lord. Well, look at the final verses. It says, Now a great many of the Jews knew that Jesus was there. And they came, watch this, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom, again, we're told he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him now, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. So people are coming to the house gathering, notice, not just for Jesus alone, but because Lazarus had become quite the talk. I mean, the guy came back from the dead. He had a pretty powerful life testimony. Again, we're told the second time, Lazarus had been raised from the dead. Can you imagine having a guy like that in your fellowship? The guy who came back from the dead, who Jesus resurrected from death in the tomb. You can't dismiss Lazarus was a man who had an incredible life testimony. 
And because of that life testimony, it says that people were being impacted on account of Lazarus. It says many went away, the Bible tells us, verse 11, and were now believing in Jesus because of Lazarus' life testimony. As the result, verse 10 says, all the religious leaders were now plotting to put Lazarus to death too because he's helping people come to Christ and they don't like that. And let me make one sort of further and final observation if I can. And if you want to dismiss this, you are free to, but this just comes to my heart whenever I read this passage. It seems in some ways when you look at the scene that Lazarus has almost become sort of like a spiritual celebrity. Look again with me in verse 9, if you would. Notice it says that many were coming, but it says they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they also might see Lazarus. They came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they also might see Lazarus. Can I say there's something sort of sad and maybe out of balance among God's people when coming for Jesus is just not enough? That in some way, people also need an exciting follower of Jesus to draw them in or to attract them. And sort of the Christian celebrity syndrome happens when the Lord's people, I think, become dull-hearted. And then all of a sudden, there needs to be, in a sense, a spiritual figure, someone like a Lazarus, some celebrity spiritually that sort of gives a desire to want to attend the meeting or to show up to the gathering. Maybe it's some very charismatic and talented communicator. And that's the draw because that person is just, when they communicate, they just, wow. And that's the draw. Or maybe it's some famous person that's going to be a speaker somewhere or a great musical team or, or the popular Christian artist comes to town and offers their concert or whatever and, and, and just the presence of Jesus somehow isn't enough to draw God's people. That we can't come just for Jesus' sake only but we have to be enticed to want to attend by someone else like a Lazarus and so forth. I have to be very honest, and I think we all need to, oftentimes that's the case among the church. Again, I've been a Christian a long time, and, and the reality is this. I see occasions where you know, a, Christian, you know, a famous Christian person or a wonderful musical artist will spend $30, and thousands of people will pack an auditorium because of the artist or the speaker or whatever, and you think, man, if you just had a prayer meeting and you said, Jesus Christ is going to show up and it's free would as many people come we know they won't we all know it and I have to step back and to ask listen I'm glad the Lord uses people but God help us maybe to have a change of heart where Jesus would be enough where Psalm 85 could become true where it says there to us will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you. You, Lord. That is the greatest draw. Let's stand together. Let's pray.